Well, good morning. It's good to be with you here again this morning. Whenever I go speak at a church, there are several things I like to try to accomplish before I get up to speak, which I did not get done this morning. One is I like to go to your bulletin board and just see what's happening in your church life and see what's going on just to try to get a better window of what's happening. And the other is I try to find a clock in the sanctuary so I know when to quit speaking. And I'm still trying to look for it, and now I see it back there. Boy, they're pointing at big time, and my eyes at my age, I'm trying to get it, but uh, in case I go too long, Steve, you might just have to send me a text and tell me to throttle down, so uh, let me know. Um, the one thing I did observe since I've been here this morning is uh, how much coming to Fairlawn almost seems like coming home in some respects. Um, I was sitting right behind Dave Barkman, and my memory flashes back to when Dave was in the youth group with my older brothers, and they came to our chicken farm on a regular basis to catch chickens and come to the house for refreshments. And I see Daryl and Ed over here playing basketball and softball, and Barry's down front here. I saw Gary I used to work with, and Ron's back here. I used to work with him. And many of you who I've crossed paths with in life in one way or another, uh, traveled to Kenya with Steve and just a, a lot of good memories that I have from a lot of the faces that I see out there, which uh, it feels good to be coming back home. In that respect, it's also kind of scary as I speak to think of all those people that know me out there and wondering how this will all end up, I guess. So uh, the one thing that I uh, do sometimes when I preach, if I can't see the clock, is I just pop a breath mint in my mouth, and I know when that breath mint is gone, then it's time to quit. And I did that one time, and I reached in my pocket and popped it in, and here, this thing just didn't dissolve. And John, I popped a button in my mouth. And after two hours, of people were kind of glassed over, and I realized this breath mint wasn't going to dissolve. Don't believe that. <laughs> but anyway, I, uh, I'm excited to share with you this morning. It's good to be here. Uh, a number of weeks ago, probably a couple months ago already, when Pastor Dwayne called me, and asked me like I filled the pulpit this morning. He told me that you're going through a series on, on the parables and wondered if I have a parable that I would like to speak on. So I told him, give me some time to think about it. And somehow the, the Lord just laid the parable of the sheep and the goats on my heart. And now I here stand before you and I'm probably going to call you sheeps and, or sheep, sheep and goats this morning. How is that for a guest speaker calling the audience a bunch of animals? But um, a couple of things I'd like to say. I'm not, not sure what all Pastor Dwayne has talked about parables. Uh, but I think it's especially true of this parable that as we look at parables, we need to be very careful how we interpret those. Um, most of the Bible is uh, accounts of actual historical events that have happened and about people that live. But the parables, Jesus told stories. They're, they're stories, they're fictional stories uh, that he used to give his audience uh, a lesson, uh, an example and he spoke in, in ways and in used terms that they could understand. So this morning's parable is not an actual event, but it's a story that Jesus said. Uh, if Dwayne told you to interpret parables otherwise, follow his instructions. But I believe we have to be careful how we interpret parables. That it's, uh, I would say let's learn the lesson, but let's not apply our theology on, on parables. One thing I've noticed about people is that we tend to put them in in groups. We categorize people and put them in specific groups. Uh, let me give you a couple examples. Um, if we want to go political with it, I could ask this morning, I won't do that, 
I could ask this morning for all the Republicans to raise your hand and then all the Democrats to raise your hand. And I've divided you into two groups. I've divided you out. Or I could ask you um, for all the rich people to stand or all the poor people to stand. And on that note, if you have uh, clothes to wear, food to eat, a roof over your head, any kind of transportation and any money left over at all to um, go out to eat or go to a ball game or buy an ice cream cone, any kind of leisure activity at all, you are among the 15% of the richest people in the world. So I believe you're all wealthy this morning. Um, I could categorize you in finding out who all of you went to see the movie The Dark Knight Rises and who all did not. I could put you in those groups. I could put you in all kinds of groups. And we as people tend to do that to each other. And we do it from our perspectives, from the way we view things, uh, from our culture, from our experiences. Um, there's just many different ways that we categorize people and place them in, and we kind of stereotype them and put them into groups. In reality, there are two groups of people. And now you're wondering what those two groups of people are. We might say, well, they're, they're American and non-American. They're, they're white or they're Latino. They're Latino or they're black. We could go on and on. But in reality, there's two groups of people. There's the wrong and the right. There's the saved and the unsaved. And I'm just using different terms for the same groups of people. And as a parable today puts it, they're the sheep and the goats. If you have your Bibles and you care to, you can turn to Matthew chapter 25. I'll uh, begin reading at verse 31. And while you're looking that up, let me just give you a little bit of a backdrop to this parable. Jesus was nearing the, the end of his life here on earth. And he, uh, we go back just a couple chapters we see of the triumphal entry. When he entered Jerusalem down off the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem for the last time, before his crucifixion, before all the Jews were gathered together for Passover. And a few days later, he was teaching the people, and he gave this great exposition in Matthew chapter 24 about the signs of the end times. And then he proceeds and tells them several parables about what the, the, the kingdom of God is going to be like. And he talks about the ten virgins who were waiting for the bridegroom to come. Five were prepared and five were not. He talks about the, the three servants who had received money from their master that they were supposed to be stewards of, and he wanted it when he came back. And then he goes on and talks about the parable of the sheep and the goats. And like I said, when Jesus spoke in parables, he used terms that the people, that the culture could relate to and understand. Um, he was here in Jerusalem speaking to his audience and if I can let my imagination run a little bit, uh, I've had the privilege of being over in Jerusalem. And as you're standing in Jerusalem, you can look out around Jerusalem and you see a, a real rugged, rocky terrain. And you'll see a shepherd with his sheep and goats. And he's tending those sheep and he's tending those goats. And Jesus then begins to speak this parable in that setting. So let's uh, begin to read at Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you 
from the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you fed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me into your home. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink, or a stranger and we showed you hospitality, or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you in sick or in prison and visit you? The king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you did not feed me. I was thirsty, and you did not give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me to your house. I was naked, and you did not give me any clothes. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord... When have we ever seen you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. So here Jesus was speaking to his audience and talking about the day when he, as a righteous judge, will sit on his glorious throne, as the text tells us, and he is going to divide the people into one of two groups. He is going to divide the sheep and the goats from each other. And he goes on to say, you know, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was in need, and because you did this to me, you are one of the sheep, and I'll put you on my right side you have the promise of eternal life. And he said, well, Lord, when, when did we ever see you in those conditions? We don't recall that. Um, can you imagine as you're standing there before Jesus, the righteous judge, it says all nations, all people will be gathered before him, and this is the parable speaking. And when our turn comes, we're going to stand before the judge, and he's going to say, it's either right or left. It's too late to go back and relive life and to do things differently or to help those people that we could have helped or should have helped. It's now, it's all on record. And they said, well, Lord, we don't remember seeing you in those conditions. And he said, yeah, but. He said, when you helped the least of these brothers and sisters, when you helped the down and outers, when you helped the people that were in need in your life, they were crying out for help, they were crying out for mercy, and you responded to that, it's as if you were doing it to me. Did you ever stop and think about when you help somebody that you're doing it to Jesus? Uh, sometimes I think of maybe I'm doing it for Jesus, but you're literally doing it for Jesus or to Jesus. And as a result, Jesus said, well, you're one of the sheep and I will put you on my right side. The goats, he says, those are the ones that you didn't feed me. You didn't give me any drink of water. You didn't come visit me. You didn't do anything for me. And you're over here. You're separated me. You're going to the lake of fire that was prepared for the devil and his demons. Can you imagine that feeling? 
And the reason they were put on the left is because he said, you didn't give me food, you didn't give me water, you didn't take care of the people. Do you begin to think of those people that have been in your life and you didn't help them? You didn't care about them because they were kind of the least of these. You know, the personalities and the, the way that a, a sheep and a goat are made up are quite different. Sheep are gentle and quiet, very innocent animals, very non-aggressive and goats, on the other hand, they cause a lot of problems. They are very strong-willed, strong-minded. They're pushy. They're self-sufficient. Sheep have to rely on a shepherd to help them. And goats think they have it all together and they don't need any help. Animal people claim that goats are smarter than sheep. However, that may also be why they get into trouble, because they think they can handle everything themselves. When you think about a goat, what do you think about? Have you ever heard somebody use a term or maybe even use a term yourself when somebody kind of frustrates you or you're a little irritated with somebody and you say, why, you old goat you? Have you ever heard that? Or somebody really upsets you. Boy, Barry, you really get my goat. So we really don't want to be goats, do we? We'd much rather be classified as a sheep. But how do we know on which side that we belong to? Jesus is the, the sitting on that glorious throne, he says, as a judge, and he's going to divide the sheep from the goats based on what? You know, if I'm a judge, I'm going to base my judgment on certain criteria. I may make good judgment, but I may make bad judgment at times based on the criteria and the guidelines that I use. But we know that Jesus is the righteous judge. He's going to judge fairly, and he will never make any mistakes. But what is the criteria that he is using to divide the sheep and the goats? And here's where we need to be very careful that we um, remember that this is a parable. Because the bottom line is, as you look at this parable, the sheep are rewarded eternal life because of the good, kind deeds that they had done to people. The goats are separated from God for eternity because they did not do those kind deeds. Doesn't that sound a lot like a works-based salvation? If you forget everything else that I've said up to this point or that I'm going to say, please remember this. I am not here promoting or suggesting that our salvation is based on works or kind deeds or good things that we do. The only way that we have salvation is through Jesus Christ, his atoning sacrifice that he made on the cross, and me accepting that as his free gift of salvation to me. That's the only way that any of us will ever be saved. If you look at this parable, you could almost uh, base it on a works-based theology. You know, if I do enough kind deeds, if I help enough hungry people and go to the prisons and visit the prisoners, if I do enough good things, I'll be all right. I'm not here to suggest that at all. And don't think ever that those good deeds are going to get you to heaven. It's Christ's atoning blood that saves us from our sins that will get us into heaven. Don't ever forget that. But it is important to remember what this parable is saying. The fact is, all of us at some point in life were the least of these. And we cried out for help. And we needed help. And God in his mercy and his love and his grace extended that to us. And as a result, 
He's living in us, and we need to be an extension of that. So when other people are crying out in mercy, even as we were, we need to be able to extend that to them. You see, a goat who has never cried out for mercy, never asked for salvation, he has, there's nothing inside of him that would compel him to hear the cries of other people for help. He doesn't see that need. So I believe that Jesus in this parable is saying it does make a difference how we treat people. In this parable, it's very clear that the judge, the righteous judge, made a difference on how he judged people based on how they lived their life and how they treated other people. So how do we know whether we're a sheep or a goat? Well, first of all, like I said, we have to accept Christ as our Savior. That gets us, that gets us in the sheepfold, as it were. But as a sheep, we have to start living like a sheep if we're going to be living in the sheepfold. And as a result of we crying out to God, he expects us to hear the cries of other people. And when you think about ministering to the least of these, and that's the criteria that the parable illustrates here that the judge used to determine whether you're a sheep on the right or a goat on the left. Now, who are the least of these? Who are the least of these in our life today? And man, we would not want to associate with those, would we? We really wouldn't want to get down and dirty with, uh, with those people. You know, those neighbors that live across the street and the husband and wife are always fighting and they're always yelling at their children and there's trash in the backyard and, you know, the parties they have on the weekends, you're just praying that some good Christian family would buy their house and that family moves to the bad section of Maslin or Worcester or somewhere. You just want to get, get them out of your neighborhood. Is that how we feel? Or do we view that family as being the least of these? What do you think would happen if you would start inviting them to your house for, for dinner, for a picnic? Oh, I, I'd never want to do that because the rest of the neighbors would kind of classify me in with them, right? So I, I really shouldn't associate with them. What do you think Jesus would say about that? If, if you're doing it to those people, you're doing it to me. Or how about you students who are going back to school here in a couple weeks, and I know I shouldn't remind you, but it's just a few weeks away. You know, that boy or girl that sits off to the side of the cafeteria all by themselves, you know, they just act a little weird. And they dress a little, you know, just, they look different. And nobody wants to talk with them. Nobody wants to sit and eat lunch with them. You know, if I sit down and eat lunch with him, people would think I'm strange, I'm, I'm weird. I think Jesus wants us to go sit with those people and eat lunch with them. Or what about at work? You know, every job has them. Those guys that are just, oh, they get under your skin, they're frustrating, and you're just waiting for the day that the boss fires them. You just can't wait till that happens. How about if you take the opposite approach and befriend that person and, and try to help, oh, I better not do that, or I might lose my job because then the boss would think I'm kind of like him. Aren't those the least of these in our lives as sheep that have been transformed, I believe it is our calling, our duty, to reach out to the least of these. And I believe that's one lesson that Jesus was trying to illustrate here, that it makes a difference to God how we treat those people. We need to reach out and be their friends. I am a firm, firm believer 
in what most people call friendship evangelism or friendship gospel. Historically and statistically, it tells us that of people who are Christians today, who are in a church today, that did not have the privilege of growing up in a Christian home or a church, are there because of one particular reason. 85% of people that are in churches today that didn't grow up in a church or didn't grow up in a Christian home, 85% of those people are at church today because somebody became their friend. A lot of times we think it's probably some big Billy Graham crusade, uh, maybe a TV broadcast or something, or maybe, maybe it's the pastor or the missionary. The fact is about half a percent of those types of people are in church today because of a big mass evangelistic crusade. Don't get me wrong. I believe in those. I think they're good things. But I'm saying the most important thing that the church can do, the most important thing that we as sheep can do to the least of those that are around us is to reach out to those people and become their friends. In fact, I have a friend. I'll be meeting with him tomorrow morning at 5 o'clock because at some point in his life, somebody reached out to him and became his friend out of high school. He was a drug addict. He was an alcoholic. He tried to commit suicide. He was messed up. He was one of the least of these. Somebody became his friend. And he said, because that person stepped out out of his comfort zone and he became my friend, I am where I am today. Today, him and his wife are both actively involved in their church. And he gets together, him and I get together every Monday morning because he needs somebody just to keep him accountable, to help him along. And he said, it's because someone cared enough to be my friend. Now, whoever that was had to kind of step out of their comfort zone. Here's a guy out of high school who is on drugs. He's an alcoholic. He's tried to commit suicide. He's about as messed up as you can get. And whoever that was stepped out and said, you know, I'm willing to be your friend. And as a result, he's in the sheepfold today. Are you willing to, to be that kind of friend to those types of people? Who are the least of these in your life? You know who they are. Are you willing to step out of your comfort zone and maybe even get a little, a little dirty with them? Get down on their level and minister to them. Bearing in mind that Jesus, the righteous judge, someday will look at you and say, one of two, because you have done it to the least of these, you have done it to me. Or because you didn't, you didn't do it to me. How much value do those people really have? Is it really worth my time? Is it really worth my effort to spend time on people like that? They probably won't get it anyway, right? How much value would you place on the life of James Holmes this morning? James Holmes, does that ring a bell with anybody? Y'all too bashful to tell, tell me who, who it is? Anybody know who James Holmes is? You didn't hear his name in the news a lot in the last week? If I say movie massacre, does that ring a bell? Does that man have any value? What do you think would have happened if some point in the past, somebody would have sat with him in the cafeteria and said that Jesus loves you? How can I help you? Or even today, if somebody would start writing notes of encouragement to him and say, I love you, Jesus cares about you. Or does he even have enough value? Is it worth anybody's time to do something like that to him after what he has done? 
How much value is there to a person like that? Let me try to illustrate it this way. I have a $10 bill here in my hand. Does anybody want the $10? One honest person in the whole sanctuary. Come on down. All the rest of you, you would have been honest, you would have had your opportunity. You would like this $10 bill. Why? Because I like it. Yeah, and it's worth 10 bucks, right? Before I give it to him, let's give it a little bit of a treatment. I'll just crumple it all to pieces. You still want it? Sure. Barry, why would he still want the $10? It's still worth 10 bucks, right? Okay, before I give it to him, let's, let's really put him to a test here. We'll step on it, get it all dirty, and crunch it up. Better yet. You still want it? It's still 10 bucks, right? Oh, I'll give you a bigger test. Boy, is that thing crumpled up. Your janitor's doing a pretty good job. It's not all that dirty, really. Still want it? Why? It's still worth 10 bucks, right? Still worth 10 bucks. Have it. Thank you. Now, you know what he's going to do with that 10 bucks? He's going to take it home. He's going to clean it up. He's going to smooth it out. He's going to carefully put it back together. He's going to tape it up. And he's going to bring it back to church next Sunday and put it in the offering, right? <laughs> no, you can do with that 10 bucks whatever you want to. But I'll tell you, it's worth 10 bucks. Even though it's been crumpled, it's been dirty, it's been torn to pieces. That $10 bill is still worth $10. And he is going to take care of that $10. He's going to put it back together. And he's going to get $10 worth of value out of that $10 sometime. Those people in your life who are dirty, who are crumpled, who are torn to pieces, are still worth 10 bucks. Let me quickly clarify that. The Bible tells us that one soul, even the soul of James Holmes, is worth more than the entire world. But for the illustration that I'm using here, every person is worth 10 bucks. No matter what they have been through, no matter what condition you find your neighbor in, no matter what condition that student that you go to school with is in, no matter what condition that guy you work with is in, he is still worth 10 bucks. He's still worth more than the entire world. And we as sheep, we as Christians, we as God's children are called, are mandated to go out to those people and bring value back to their life. To clean them up, to put them back together. And ultimately we can't do it. It's God who's doing it through us. But that's when the judge was looking at the sheep, he said, because you have done that, because you have put value back into these people's lives, because you recognize that they have value, come. Come. Come and experience the reward that has been created for you since the beginning of time. What are we doing as Christians? What are we doing as churches with those people who seem to have no value? They just make one mistake after another. They just do one foolish thing after another, and they just aren't worth my time. Or are they? They absolutely are because they're still worth 10 bucks. They're still worth more than the entire world. That is one of my passions. That is one of my concerns that... We as Christians, we as churches, 
I'm afraid we get into these tendencies that we like to get in these holy huddles. Whether that's a church group, whether it's your ABF group, whatever group you're involved with, we like to get in these holy huddles and we just get really comfortable with each other. And it's so easy just to huddle up and sing kumbaya and forget about all those people that we have said they have no value. We're willing to just kind of shut them out to the outside. And that's not what the righteous judge wants us to do with those people. He wants us to take those torn $10 bills and help them put their lives back together and realize that they have value. Where are you at in your personal life? Where is your church at? And I, I'm hoping and trusting that Fairlawn is one of those churches that is concerned about the people in Apple Creek that are down and out, that the people in wherever you're living at, that you want to reach out to those. But I know it's so easy It's so easy to get in these holy huddles and just really enjoy life. You know, it takes time. It takes effort. It takes a lot of work to put that $10 bill back together. But that $10 bill is worth 10 bucks, and he's going to have a lot of value in that $10. He's going to take the time and the effort that it needs to carefully put that tear, line it up, and tape it together. Can we do that with the people that are around us? Or are we too concerned about our our image, whether that's our image as a person or our image as a church? I just have a real passion and a real concern that churches don't for that they remember that their calling is is to go out and help the least of these. I think that is our first and most important mission field of any church. I'm excited to see you supporting missionaries over on the other side of the world, translating the Bible. I'm excited that I've been able to go to Kenya and be involved in crusades over there and help build an orphanage. I I hope I can go again. In fact, everybody you hear from Fairlawn, I go over there with Steve sometime. Your life will never be the same. But more important than all that, I think we need to be very careful that we don't forget about the crumpled up, torn apart, dirty people living, working, and going to school with us. What are we doing about those people? Do we even care What if James Holm would have been in a theater up here in Worcester and shot all those people? Would we care about him? Would we do anything about it? Or is that just a a person who has made a series of bad choices and he's got to live with it? I mean, there's so many people that need our help. And I just want to challenge you as individuals and as a church not to forget about those people. A friend of mine once said that a church is in one of two modes. They're either a mission-minded church or they're in a maintenance mode. I hope and trust that Fairlawn is not in a maintenance mode, that they are mission-minded. They want to reach out to people. And this friend of mine told me that a church that is in a mission mode is involved in a movement for God. You see God changing lives. You see good things happening in your church, and God is moving. He says that a church that is in a maintenance mode becomes a monument for God. Have you ever been to a monument? A monument is stating that something good happened here at some point. And we built this monument so people will always remember what this good thing was that happened in some point in history. So a church is either involved in being a movement for God or a monument for God. I want to challenge you as a church not to become a monument. You have got a good thing going. You have got people, you've got facilities, you've got a lot of good things. But don't ever allow that to become a monument. 
Use what God has blessed you with to become a movement for God and be a church that is mission-minded. And not just mission-minded in helping Steve and Becky go to Kenya or helping Roman and Carolyn translate the Bible, but mission-minded in the fact that you're helping those neighbors who are struggling. Now, my, my passion, folks, is, is that Christians would go out in their communities and be the sheep of God and minister to the least of these. And you know what? The, the, the neat thing about that is it doesn't take Pastor Dwayne. It doesn't take your youth pastor. It, do, it doesn't take... You're all eligible for that. You don't have to have a position in the church. Just go out to those people that you're rubbing shoulders with day in and day out and be their friend. And that way, when you face the righteous judge, he will say, come. Well done. Enter into your reward. I challenge you this week as you go to work in a few weeks as the youth here will be going to school, your neighbors, reach out to the least of these this week. Find a way to just to start become their friend. It's got to start somewhere. I hope that if Pastor Dwayne ever invites me back, that I would have opportunity to come back here and I would see that you have went out and you have found the least of these out in the community and brought them to church. And as a result, they're transformed from goats to sheep and have the promise of eternal life. Thank you so much for listening and your attention. Steve, I'm going to turn it back to you. Thank you, Paul, for coming and challenging us this morning. What an awesome challenge that is. Are we reaching out to the least of these, are we helping those around us?